Thanks, team, for leading in that singing this morning, our time of worship, and uh, especially for that last song. I know that um, they were a little concerned about whether how many people would know it, and I, I thought you sang it well this morning, so thank you for that as well. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Once again, this is Paul's letter addressed to the saints who are at Ephesus. According to chapter 1, verse 1, and our theme for this series of messages based on the book of Ephesians has been both heavenly-minded and earthly good. Letter can actually be divided into two sections or two parts. The heavenly-minded part is found in verse, chapters 1 through 3, and the earthly or... Um, Boots on the ground kind of material is found in chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 is the theological part, letting us know what God wants us to know. And the, like I said, the practical boots on the ground materials presented in chapters 4 through 6. And is really what we are to do with what we now know based on the first three chapters. So as the Apostle Paul comes to chapter 4, the beginning of the more practical matters, he addresses first and foremost this idea of oneness or unity in the church. In verses 1 through 6, he implored, and that's a, a very strong appeal. He could even be begging, you might say his recipients, to live up to their calling by sticking together. Be preservers and promoters of the unity that God has built into the very DNA of the church. Look again at verses 4, beginning at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We don't create that kind of community. Notice it's a compound word, common unity. This kind of unity is a God thing. We don't have to create it. But we can certainly undermine it or even destroy it. You can also try and create some kind of cheap knockoff, a pseudo-community. But here in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is imploring us not to create it, but to preserve and promote it. And that's the best we can do. Last week we considered verses 7 through to the end of verse 16. In these verses, we were prodded to live out our calling by growing together. God has done his part. Look at verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some of evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Live up to your calling by growing together and sticking together. 
And your calling is a personal calling. It requires a personal response. I can't respond for you and and you can't respond for me. All have sinned. Romans 3.23 becomes, I have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 becomes, I have sinned. I deserve to die and be separated from God forever. That's all the bad news. And then we have some good news beginning in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that becomes Christ died for me. In my place. And then Ephesians chapter 2, we've studied it weeks previous. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace... That's undeserved favor. We can't earn it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And that becomes, my, by faith, I am trusting Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 tells us that when we do that, When a person starts trusting Jesus Christ alone as their personal Savior, they become new creatures. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. And certainly new things have come. But not all old things passed away. Not all. Have you noticed If you haven't, I would suggest that you take your pulse this morning. Because all of us continue to wrestle. In fact, listen to these verses from Romans chapter 7. The great apostle Paul himself continues to struggle. And he describes that ongoing personal struggle with the old things in his life. Let me begin by reading in verse 18. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living within me that does it. Dr. Zimmick, the academic dean of the seminary, Expositor Seminary in Jupiter, Florida, refers to this ongoing struggle that we all wrestle with as our sin hangover. I like that term. As believers, we still suffer from a hangover as a result of sin. Listen to this excerpt from his book, Doing God's Business, God's Way, a biblical theology of ministry. Dr. Zimmick writes, these biblical tensions go on and on. However, the true disciple of Christ is no schizophrenic. Two people or two natures do not coexist in him, one in a black hat, the other in a white one. Nevertheless, although his positional blessings in Christ are very real, 
And we talked about those back in Ephesians chapter 1, right at the beginning of Paul's letter. In verse 3, he said, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. And then he goes on to list some of those specific blessings that belong to us who have put our trust in Christ. Dr. Zimmick continues, although our positional blessings in Christ are very real, so are evidences of our sinful hangover. As a matter of fact, one of the earmarks of a maturing disciple is this recognition and revulsion of sin's remnants. True believers must not live in denial when it comes to their sin, nor will the Lord accept complacency with carnality. In other words, he's not going to accept excuses or, or us being dismissive. It's no big deal. Everybody else is doing it. Dr. Zimmick says the latter attitude, biblically, will be characteristic of a pseudo-disciple. I'm assuming that none of us here this morning are interested in being a pseudo-disciple, a wannabe, a fake, a pretend disciple. And the Apostle Paul makes this same assumption as he begins to write chapter 4, and specifically verses 17 to 24. He provides directives that will help us as believers to recover from our sin hangover and get on with those good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Chapter 2, verse 10. Paul's directives can be summarized with three short words. Stop, start, and grow. Allow me to read the passage in its entirety and then we'll begin to dig in. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. Begin at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. This is God's word to us today. Please be seated. Father, thank you for this written revelation. We're so blessed to live at a time and in a place where we have unlimited access to the Bible. May we not take this timely advantage for granted. 
May we be found setting aside time, creating a habit to expose ourselves to its contents on a regular basis, hearing it, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and even meditating on it. And now as we turn our attention to this specific passage in Ephesians chapter 4, we invite your spirit who indwells each and every true believer to illumine our minds so that we are able to grasp what you are wanting to communicate to us this morning. And Father, as we hear your word to us today, may we be responsive to your leadership in our lives, individually and collectively, by the power of your spirit, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. How can you and I live the life God has called and enables you to live? It's a really good question. How can you live the life God has called and enables you to live? In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul implored the believers in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Now in verse 17, he affirmed together with the Lord to, to help us to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. First it was how we ought to walk, and now it's how we ought not to walk. Look at the first part of verse 17. So I say this, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord. In the New International Version, it reads, I insist on it. And the New Living Translation says, with the Lord's authority, I say this. So whatever Paul is about to say, he doesn't issue a direct command. Affirming together with the Lord seems to, however, limit our options. When we were kids growing up, my older sister could be bossy at times and uh, would tell me to do something. And me being compliant as I was, would always ask, why? Why should I do that? She said, well, Dad said so. All of a sudden, immediately, I was in compliance. Perhaps Paul is attempting to be gentle and yet firm here making his appeal together with the Lord really becomes as good as a command. The choice becomes for us to obey or not to obey. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And Gentiles in this context are referring to those who to this point have not professed faith in God. They are unbelievers. So knowing that, what is the Apostle Paul affirming with the Lord here in verse 17? Stop living like an unbeliever. And I only wish it was that easy. 
It's not. But the first step that Paul presents here, accept or agree with God's assessment of an unbelieving life. Paul presents God's assessment here in verses 17 through 19. But before we even get to those verses, let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul describes life prior to becoming a believer. He's reminding the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. And notice how the chapter begins. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. In other words, the world had squeezed them into its mold. They were worldly in every sense of the word. And according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that, of course, is Satan. They were his children. John chapter 8, verse 44, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 speaks to that as unbelievers. Among them, we too, now Paul includes himself in the description, all formally, number one, lived in the lusts of our flesh, number two, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and number three, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is a description of a life well lived apart from God prior to becoming believers. Do you remember those days? It's not a pretty picture, is it? And un as unbelievers, we were part of the world's system, its values, its per perspectives, its priorities were ours. We're controlled by Satan, indulging in the flesh. Whatever our insatiable appetites desired and we could attain them, they were ours, destined to experience God's wrath. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 11 informs us that in that state, we were enemies of God. Here in chapter 4, Paul adds to the description. Look at the end of verse 17. That you no longer, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. New, New Living Translation reads, for they are hopelessly confused. Unbelievers are lost in the fog of their own minds. Whether they realize it or not, their rational abilities have been impaired. Not because of alcohol. This is an LUI. They are not driving under the influence, but they're living under the influence of sin. And notice how Paul traces their impairment back to its source. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. The lights are on, but nobody's home, spiritually speaking. Unbelievers are incapable of grasping spiritual reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, 
provides the diagnosis. But a natural man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And they are darkened in their understanding as a result of being excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. As a result of, or because of, notice, the hardness of their heart. Ultimately, unbelievers have a heart problem that separates them from God, which limits their spiritual understanding and impairs their rational abilities. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel delivers a promise to the children of Israel from the Lord God that discloses the only remedy for a hardened heart. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. The Lord God is the only one that can perform this kind of heart transplant. Eugene Peterson in the message offers an interpretive translation of verse, nine, verse 18. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. Notice verse 19. And they, having become calloused, that's indicating a loss of sensitivity, perhaps indicating that they have no sense of shame any longer. Having given themselves over, this is the same word that is used to describe what Judas did in the Garden of Gethsemane, betraying Jesus with a kiss, handed him over to his enemies. In this case, it's unbelievers handing themselves over to sensuality. New International Version calls them lustful pleasures. For the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You know, folks, our sinful appetites are absolutely insatiable. It will want more and more and more if it's allowed to be part of our lives. Why does Paul follow up this, his affirmation, together with the Lord, to stop living like an unbeliever with this description of an unbeliever's lifestyle or life, how they walk? Why would he do that? It's not another put-down or Paul's not trash-talking unbelievers. That's not his purpose. Not at all. Paul knows how attractive and seductive the things of this world can be. And sin is not emasculated somehow the moment we become believers. It's still just as attractive as it was 
and appealing as it was prior to us coming to Christ. The only difference is that as believers, our affections are growing in a different direction. Little by little, we just sang it. Little by little, every day, little by little, in every way, he's changing me. The problem I have with that chorus is that it puts it all on God. And in this passage, you'll see in a few moments, we have some responsibilities. Stop living like an unbeliever by accepting God's assessment of an unbelieving life. Paul's description is intended to be a deterrent. Embrace what you have learned and been taught about the life of Christ, is his second point. Notice verse 20. It begins with but, and that signals that Paul is about to make a contrast here. Rather than walking as the Gentiles walk, but you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. The New International Version is a little clearer in terms of the meaning of these verses. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In other words, this is not referring to learning the facts about Jesus' life. It's learning the truth about who he was and what he taught and then responding personally and appropriately to his invitations to follow. Come, follow me, follow in his steps. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There you have it. Rid yourself of sin. Stop living like an unbeliever. Accept God's assessment of an unbelieving life. It's not attractive. Embrace what you've learned and been taught about the life of Christ. Start, stop, grow. Start living like a true Christ follower. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Notice verse 22 here in chapter 4. That in reference to your former manner of life, he's speaking to those habits that we brought with us into this new life in Christ. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. New International Version reads, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off. New Living Translation, to throw off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And Eugene Peterson's in the message reads, everything, and I do mean everything, 
connected that with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. Put off old sinful behaviors. Get rid of them. We're translating putting off as a word that we would use for changing our clothing. And notice Paul makes this our personal responsibility. Once again, God has provided everything that we need. He's made it possible. But you and I are the ones who need to take it off and get rid of it. In our home, Cynthia makes sure that there are clean clothes hanging in our closet. But I'm still responsible for changing my shirt. God has made it in the same way God has made it the new habits, a new life in Christ possible. Will you make the change so that you are no longer walking as Gentiles walk? Jay Adams in his in his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual, uses this child joke to make an important point. When is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Come on. <laughs> he then proposes the following change in the punchline. When is a door not a door? when it is something else. Here's the point he's trying to make, and I'm quoting him. In thinking about change, the biblical data indicate just that. Change takes place not merely when certain changes occur, but when there has been a change. The change of an activity is not the same as the change of a person. Key sentence. The former may involve action sporadically or temporarily sustained by certain conditions like self-discipline, being in public, those kinds of things. The latter involves, in other words, a change of a person, involves a pattern developed as part of the fabric of a person's life that brings about those actions in spite of conditions. He uses the following example to illustrate what he's saying. When is a liar not a liar? When is a thief not a thief? When he stops lying. When he stops stealing. No, he writes, precisely not. There is no assurance whatever that a thief who is not stealing has ceased being a thief. All that the stopping of stealing indicates is that for that moment in present time, he's not stealing. Do you understand what he's saying? Behavioral modification will not suffice. It's temporary, not lasting, oftentimes. It relies on circumstances. The door is still a door. For the believer to change a sinful behavior from his past, former manner of life, Paul refers to it here, requires something more if it's going to be a real change. 
Look at verse 23. And that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Not just putting it off, but renew your thinking. Putting off old sinful behavior begins with confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is written to believers. You realize that, right? Confession is not pleading or begging for forgiveness. That's not what 1 John is talking about. Remember, when we come to Christ, we're forgiven for all sin, past, present, and future. So confessing our sin involves agreeing with God that your behavior that is inappropriate, that you are a sinner, are willing to deal with the sin in your life. That's what confession is. To take off old sinful behavior. It's, it's a willingness to acknowledge that, that you are responsible. You're accepting responsibility for your sin. The sin that you've committed. No excuses. No blaming. You own it. You face your sin. You acknowledge that it's yours. That it is against God. And you admit and repent of it. That is the meaning of true confession. And that is what putting off the old self looks like. Now listen to these verses from Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of service. And... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewing of our mind. This is where the word of God becomes absolutely essential. Set your minds on things above not on things in this earth. Colossians, 1, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, Whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Renewing our minds, filling our minds with God's thoughts as much as we are able. Put off sinful behaviors. Renew your thinking. And then verse 24 Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, NIV reads, created to be like God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. The message puts it this way. 
a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. Put on new godly behaviors. Again, this is not behavioral modification. It is a supernatural transformation that begins when we receive our new hearts and continues as we put off and continue to put off the old and put on the new in the likeness of God. Righteousness and holiness. Our actions and our reactions. Our words and our deeds increasingly reflect his character. Jay Adams continued with his illustration. When is a liar not a liar? When he is something else. With what does the Bible say that lying must be replaced. When is a liar not a liar? When he becomes a truth teller. Stop living like an unbeliever. Start living like a believer. Put off those old habits that were attached to the old nature. Renew your thinking. What does the Bible say? Put on new behavior. Stop, start, grow. Grow in Christ-likeness. Beloved, God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not keeping good things from us. His plans and purposes are always for our good and for his glory. His reputation is at stake here. The world and Satan and our sin hangovers will try to persuade us otherwise. But the truth is, everything, everything he requires of us is for our good and for his glory. Will you believe that? There's one thing that will retard your spiritual growth. And at the same time, it will undermine our Christian community, our unity here at the Rock Community Church. Prevent us from preserving and promoting what God has ordained. It is sin. Make confession a regular part of your prayer life. Some of you may use that acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication as a way to organize your prayers. Don't blow by that time of confession. Spend some time there. It is an essential component, an essential component, of your continuing spiritual growth. It's interesting when the disciples asked Jesus to teach teach them to pray, confession was included. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. Confession invites God to continue his transformative work in your life, increasing your effectiveness, all for your good and his glory. Chuck Swindoll told a story, I read it many, many years ago, and have not been able to forget it. They were actually building a summer home on the, co- on the east coast of the United, United States. And the home was completed and they moved in. Once they moved in, they realized, well, we need to plant some grass here on our, at the front of our, our summer home. And so as he looked out the front window, he realized, well, first thing I have to do is get rid of those huge boulders. And so they spent a day and removed all the boulders and planned to plant grass the, the next day. But as he looked out the front window again the next day, he saw these kind of medium-sized boulders that needed to be picked up and discarded. He spent a day or maybe a few days clearing out those. And before they planted grass, they realized, nope, it has to be raked to get rid of all the little pebbles that were still on the front lawn. Once they were removed, they planted the grass. You know, those pebbles and rocks and boulders, they represent sin in our lives. And part of the sanctification process, get rid of the boulders, and then you'll see some smaller stones that need to, and we will spend the rest of our lives dealing with sin in our lives because we've been redeemed, but we're still moving towards glorification. None of us are perfect just yet. How can you live the life God has called and enables you to live? Stop living like an unbeliever. Start living like a true Christ follower. Grow in Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good and your faithful love endures forever. In the words of the psalmist, remember your promise to me. It is my only hope. Your promise revives me. It comforts me in all my troubles. The confidence the Apostle Paul expressed to the believers in Philippi continues to inspire us. I am certain that God, who began the work within you, will continue his work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Father, may we be found faithful, doing our part, working out our salvation as you continue to do your work in us. For our good and your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.